Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. Today, we're going to talk about languages that have more gender than English and about differences between simple and simplistic and backward and backwards. When you hear a sentence like, a soldier must be able to count on her fellow soldiers, what strikes you most? Some of you might think the pronoun feels off since it doesn't follow the old English rule of using the generic he when gender is unspecified. But studies have shown the primary reason this sentence strikes you as odd is probably more about the clash between the underlying gendered concept of who we expect soldiers to be, men, and the gender of the pronoun, she. For example, research shows that when people come across something like a mismatch between a pronoun and a stereotypically gendered role, like that of a nurse or soldier, their brains can actually have a little more trouble processing speech or text compared to how easily they can do it when the pronouns do match gender expectations. So it's not surprising there's been a lot of attention over the past few years on making language and our gendered views about social roles less biased. And we may hear about problems or objections in English, but it's even more interesting to think about how people are trying to meet the even greater challenges in languages that have grammatical gender, like French or Hebrew, where it's impossible to have a sentence without pervasive gender marking and where change can feel like an attack on cultural and linguistic identity. People in favor of gender-inclusive forms point out that many languages, including widely spoken ones like English, Russian, or the Romance languages, prioritize male forms when the gender of a person or animal is unknown or isn't specified. This includes things like the generic he, so often used in English in the past, but also includes things like always defaulting to the male-marked forms as the basic form in languages that have grammatical gender. For example, if a mixed group of people includes even just one man in Hebrew, you use the masculine plural for friends, havarim, versus the feminine, havaro. And in German, you use the masculine plural, studenten, with an e, versus the feminine, studenten, with an i. Another issue in grammatically gendered languages like French, Hebrew, or German is that all nouns, animate or not, belong to a gendered category. They're either masculine or feminine, or sometimes neuter. This category then determines what form of the word you use and the form of any modifying adjectives or articles. So, for instance, saying the brave soldier in French is les soldats courageux where le and courageux are masculine forms to agree with the masculine noun soldat. And in most such languages, you use the male forms when gender is unknown or mixed. For example, in German, when you talk about a female boss, you'd refer to her as bossin, the feminine form. But when you're talking about a generic or unknown boss, you use the masculine form, boss. All this sets up the potential for people to think more about men, since the masculine forms are mentally activated over and over again, since most languages use the male forms as the neutral or root forms. 
And where these masculine generic forms appear, it's always correct to interpret them as referring to men, but it's only sometimes correct to interpret them as referring to women, which creates a bias toward thinking more about men in these contexts. As a result, non-males are simply less visible, and people imagine them less often when they think about jobs or roles that have masculine nouns as their names. And research suggests this does make a difference in how people think about who does what. For example, one study showed that participants estimated that fewer women were involved in an occupation or attended a meeting for a profession when male words were used, for example, the masculine form of geophysicist, as opposed to when inclusive words were used, like those using both masculine and feminine words for geophysicist. Given that there's empirical evidence that linguistic gendering can impact who we imagine, small changes can make a difference in how we think about who is the norm. Some strategies that have been adopted in languages other than English include alternating between male and female forms for generic references, much like people sometimes alternate between he and she in English, and using gender-neutral terms. For example, new forms have been created in Hebrew and German by combining male and female markers. For example, Haveramo for mixed groups of friends or Studentenen for a group of students. Though people don't always welcome reform efforts, the history of language is rife with changes despite strong beliefs about what it should look like. In fact, centuries ago, English also had grammatical gender. But as shifts in the way we stressed syllables caused some types of words to lose their endings, we lost those gender markings. But English didn't just survive, it thrived, becoming one of the most powerful and widely spoken languages in the world, all achieved in the wake of drastic changes and in the absence of gender marking. Of course, claims of awkwardness and the idea that new forms aren't grammatically proper often precede major shifts in language, but the test of time and the needs of speakers almost always win out in the end. You just need to look to other changes that have happened over time that introduced slightly more clunky phrasing, such as the rise of the paraphrasic do that changed I think not to I do not think to realize that what we regard as the beautiful symmetry of language has, in fact, always been in a state of flux. It'll be interesting to watch how these changes continue to develop in English and especially in languages with more complicated built-in gender. That segment was written by Valerie Fridland, who's a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno and the author of a forthcoming language book called Like Literally Dude, all about the speech habits we love to hate. You can find her at ValerieFridland.com or on Twitter as FridlandValerie. Vicki Kay from South Dakota notes that she often hears designers on HGTV say simplistic instead of simple, as in, the modern room was designed to be sleek and simplistic. She asks, that's not right, is it? No, it's not right. At least it's not right if they're trying to say something good about the design. Simplistic means that something is oversimplified or lacking something important. 
For example, if I were to say that affect is a verb and effect is a noun, and I didn't talk about the exceptions, that would be a simplistic explanation. I left out important details, the exceptions. To say the room was designed to be sleek and simple means the room is clean, unadorned, and not overdone. And that's clearly what the designers mean when they're talking about their work. In this context, simple is the word you want, not simplistic. Thanks for the question, Vicki. And I found some interesting things when I was looking into the origin of the two words. An archaic meaning of simple was a medicine containing a single ingredient, specifically a medicinal herb. Here's an example from 1888. Cordials were kept by the lady of the house among her simples. And a simplest, I-S-T, was a person who made these medicines. A simplest made the simples. Simplest was essentially another name for an herbalist. And then there's also an obsolete, unrelated insult that was to say someone needs to be cut for the simples. In that case, simples was jokingly used to refer to a medical condition that made you foolish, stupid, or simple. And the cut part referred to the medical practice at the time of bloodletting. So the idea was that doctors would do some bloodletting to cure you of the simples. I think we should revive that one. They need to be cut for the simples. It can be really fun to look through obsolete meanings of words. <laughs> Our second quick and dirty tip is the difference between backward and backwards because it came up in my writing this week. These words can be adjectives and adverbs. So you can say squiggly jumped backward when aardvark shouted boo, and that's using backward as an adverb. It's describing the way squiggly is moving, the same way you might say he jumped frantically or jumped high. And you can say, Grammar Girl wishes her Xbox had backward compatibility. That's using backward as an adjective. It's describing the type of compatibility I wish I had, the same way you might say a fabulous couple has perfect compatibility. As an adjective in that backward compatibility way, Garner's modern English usage says only backward is allowed. And a Google Ngram search, which shows how often words are used in the books included in the Google Book database, shows that backwards as an adjective is almost non-existent in both American English and British English. I do have to say I've seen it quite a bit online, as in backwards compatibility, but you know that's online. If you want to write properly for your job or for schoolwork or just for life, stick with backward for the adjective. Now, when we get to the adverb, it's a different story. Both backward and backwards are correct. You can say either squiggly jumped backward or squiggly jumped backwards. The big difference is between British English and American English, although it's not as stark as some of the differences I've seen. Again, using a Google Ngram search to measure usage, as an adverb, backwards is about 1.7 times more common in British English, while backward as an adverb is almost three times more common in American English. Also, I can find both spellings on the British BBC website, but backwards seems far more common, as in the headline, Ex-Soldier Wayne Ingram Walks 70 Miles Backwards for Spinal Charity. Good job, Wayne. And I can find backwards on the New York Times website, but backward is far more common. 
So backward is the more American choice, and backwards is the more British choice, but you will find both in both languages. The way I remember that backward is the word in American English is to remind myself that Americans like shortcuts. For example, I'm willing to bet we eat in our cars more often than British people do. So think about how Americans like shortcuts, and then think about how we lopped the S off backwards to make it shorter. If you choose to use backwards as an adverb in the United States, it's not wrong, but it may just look a little weird to people. It's like spelling color with a U. It draws attention to itself and I suppose could potentially be distracting to American readers. Finally, I have a family-like story from Robert. Hello. Hi, this is, uh, this is Robert Gonzalez. I'm calling from, uh, from you in Texas. It's like a... Uh small suburb of, uh, of Kyle, which is a suburb of Austin. Um, but, uh, we have a family story. Um, so we grew up, uh, in, in Japan, uh, when I, that's where I was born. And then, uh, as we were growing up, I, uh, my family, we, we would ever drink the juice, right? So it was my brother and I, but we didn't ever call it juice because my, my, both my parents speak Spanish. And so we called it, uh, Hugo, but, my father's from, uh, he was born in Cleveland. And so they, they call like everything pop up there. So, um, because that's how he talked, we kind of, uh, kind of blended the two. So we started referring to everything we drank as a kid, we would call it Hugo pop. And, uh, so it applied to like milk, to, to apple juice, to like pop or, or even, uh, anything that wasn't water. And, uh, and so that's kind of carried on to, 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 to our kids as well. So now, now our kids would ask, you know, like for some Hugo pop, uh, it confused everybody. Cause <laughs> you know, Diaz and Theos would be running to the store and being like, Hey, where, where can we find this Hugo pop? Is that something that's only sold in Japan and, <laughs> and uh, things like that. But, um, but no, my, my parents had to kind of explain like, no, that's just, it's just juice. Just give them something to drink. That's not water. And uh, they're good. Um, and it kind of continues to this day. But anyway, love the podcast. Uh, I, I do appreciate the opportunity to share stories like this. I, I really like hearing them from other families across the country, and we've we've kind of started adopting some of these words that we've learned uh, into our norm, our our familial dialect. So, um, anyway, thank you very much. All right, God bless. Bye. Thanks so much for the call, Robert. It's such an interesting way to blend words across languages. I loved that. And I loved that people were like, "Is that something from Japan?" I laughed out loud. Thanks again. If you want to call in with your Familect story, the number is in the show notes, and it's also always in my weekly email newsletter, which you can sign up for at quickanddirtytips.com. Grammar Girl is a Quick and Dirty Tips podcast. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sams, and my editor, Adam Cecil, who just got an analog-to-digital audio converter so he can make a digital copy of an old Richard Scarry cassette tape. Our ad operations specialist is Morgan Christensen, and our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. Listener.